Chapter Seventeen of Fairylands of the South Seas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. Fairylands of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff. Chapter Seventeen. The Englishman's Story. I rose at dawn, but my host was out before me. He had left two fish cleaned and ready for cooking on a plate outside the door. Having breakfasted, I started on a walk around the atoll, which I estimated I could accomplish in about an hour. I expected to meet the Englishman somewhere on the way, and I did find him on the opposite side of the lagoon. The shore was steep, too, there. He had a steel-tipped rod in his hand and was diving off a ledge of rock, remaining below for as long as a full minute. He waved when he saw me, but kept on with his work. In about a quarter of an hour he came over to where I was standing. "'Tiresome work,' he said. "'I need a blow.' Then you see, I've been doing a bit of digging here. I had walked along the lagoon beach and had not noticed before the series of trenches higher up the land. I should think he had been digging. I inspected the ditches under his guidance. There were three, at least a quarter of a mile in length each, and from three to four feet deep. These ran in parallel lines and were about four paces apart. Fifteen to twenty shorter trenches cut through them at right angles. The sun was well above the horizon. We lit our pipes and sat down in the shade. After a few moments of silence, he said, "'I suppose you know what I'm doing here. If you have been in Papati, you must have heard. There's no secret about it, at least not any longer.' I said that I had left Papati shortly after my arrival. I had spent several idle afternoons on the veranda of the Bougainville Club, but in the talk which went around there I don't remember having heard of Panaki. "'So much the better,' he said. "'Yes, seven years is a long time, and I am not keen about feeding gossip. But when I first came down here there was a clacking of tongues from one end of the group to the other. I believe I have since earned the reputation of being rather queer. I thought you must know. The fact is, I am looking for treasure. Would you care to hear of the story?' "'Very much,' I said, "'if it won't bore you to tell it. On the contrary, it will be something of a relief.' Seven years of digging with nothing to show for it must strike an outsider as a mad business. Sometimes I'm half persuaded that I am a complete fool to go on with the search. But you can't possibly know the fascination of it. It seems like only yesterday that I came here. As you see for yourself, it's not much of an island. And to know that there is treasure of more than three million pounds buried somewhere in this tiny circle of scrub and palm. But do you know what I ask? I'm as sure of it as that I am smoking your tobacco. That is, I am sure it was buried here. Whether it has been removed since, I can't say, of course. The natives of Natarakavaki remember a white man whom they called Luta, who came here over twenty years ago and remained for something over a month. One of the four men who stole the gold and brought it to Paniki was a man named Luke Barrett, and it may have been he who came back, although he was supposed to have been killed in Australia forty years ago. It is the uncertainty that makes it such killing work at times. But when I think of giving it up, you would have to live with the thought of treasure for seven years, and to dream at night of finding it, before you could understand. He rose suddenly. If you don't mind a short walk, I will show you something rather interesting. We went along the lagoon beach for several hundred yards, then crossed toward the ocean side. Near the center of the island we came upon an immense block of coral, broken from the reef and carried there by some great storm of the past. Cut deeply into the face of the rock, I saw a curious design. 
I asked what it meant. Man, if I knew that. I believe it's the key and I can't master it. But we may as well sit down and be comfortable. If you would really care to hear the story from the beginning, it will take the better part of an hour. I'll not give you all the details, but when I've finished, you will be in a position to judge for yourself whether or not I was mad in coming here. Have you ever read Walker's book, Undiscovered Treasure? It doesn't matter, except that you have missed a very entertaining volume. It is a pity that old work is out of print. Nothing in it but bare facts about all sorts of treasures supposed to have been buried here and there about the world. You might think it would be dry, but I've found it better company than any romance I've ever read. However, that has nothing to do with this story, except in an indirect way. I first read the book as a boy, and it started me on my travels. To me, the facts about the Panaki treasure are as interesting as any of Walker's. He, of course, knew nothing about it, for it had not been stolen when his book was published. Four men had a hand in the business, a Spaniard named Alvarez, an Irishman named Kilrin, and two others of uncertain nationality, Luke Barrett, whom I spoke of a moment ago, and Archer Brown. They were a thieving, murdering lot, by all accounts, adventurers of the worst sort, and, in hope of plunder, I suppose, had joined the Peruvian army during the war with Chile in 1859-60. to Their hopes were realized beyond their expectations. They got wind of some gold buried under the floor of a church, and the strange thing was that the gold was there, and they found it. It was in thirty-kilo ingots, contained in seven chests, the whole lot worth in a neighborhood of three and a half million pounds. How they managed to get away with it, I don't know, but I have investigated the business pretty thoroughly, and I have every reason to believe that they did. They buried it again in the vicinity of Pesco, and then set out in search of a vessel. Alvarez was the only one of the four that had any education. They had all followed the sea at one time or another, but he alone knew how to navigate. The others could hardly write their own names. At Panama they signed on as members of the crew of a small schooner, and as soon as they had put to sea, knocked the captain and the other two sailors in the head, and chucked them overboard. They returned to Pasco, loaded the gold, and started for the Pomodians. This was the autumn of 1859. In the December following they landed at Pinaki, where they buried the treasure. The island was uninhabited then, as now, and they crossed to Nukatakavaki to learn the name of it. The natives were shy, but they persuaded one man to approach, and when they had the information they wanted, shot him and rowed out to their boat. If you should go to Nukatakavaki, you will find two old men there who still remember the incident. Then they went to Australia, scuttled the vessel not far from Cookstown, and went ashore with a story of shipwreck. They had some of the gold with them, not much in proportion to the amount of the treasure, but enough to keep four ordinary men in comfort for the rest of their lives. It soon went, and the four were next heard of at the Palmar Goldfields. Alvarez and Barrett were both supposed to have been killed there in a fight with some blacks. Brown and Kilrain had not mended their ways to any extent, and both were finally jerked up for manslaughter and sentenced to twenty years' penal servitude. Brown died in prison, but Kilrain served out his term and finally died in Sydney Hospital in 1912. Most of these facts, if they are facts, I had from Kilrin himself the night before he died. I met him in a curious way, or better, the meeting came as the result of a curious combination of circumstances. You have maybe have noticed the scar on my side? I had noticed a broad gash puckered at the edges where the flesh had healed, tapering to a point in the middle of his back. 
It was not much of a wound, he went on, but it gave me a deal of trouble at the time. I got it in New Guinea in 1911, when I was prospecting for gold in the back country. I was a long way from a settlement, and one day a nigger took it into his head to stick me with a spear. I suppose he wanted my gun and ammunition, for I had little else excepting my placer outfit. I let him have one bullet from a colt just before he was about to dive into the bush, and for all I know he may be lying there to this day. I have that little frizzy-headed native to thank for my knowledge of the Pinaki treasure. Sometimes I'm sorry that I killed him, but at other times I feel that shooting was altogether too easy a death for the man really responsible for bringing me here. I was in a bad way from the wound. Infection set in, and I had to nurse myself somehow to get down to a place where I could have medical attention. I managed it, but the ten days' journey was a nightmare. I was nothing but skin and bone when I left the hospital, and New Guinea not being a likely place for a convalescent, the doctor recommended me go to Australia. I had a small bag of dust, the result of a year and a half of heartbreaking work in the mountains. Most of it went for the hospital bill, and when I reached Sydney, I had very little left. I was compelled to put up at the cheapest kind of a boarding house, although the woman who kept it was quite a decent sort. Her house was in a poor quarter of the town, and her patrons mostly longshoremen and teamsters. It was a wretched life for her, but she had two children to support and was making the best of a bad job. I admired her pluck and did what I could in a small way to help her out. One evening I was waiting for supper in the kitchen when someone rapped. Before I could go to the door it opened, and an old man came stumbling in, asking for something to eat. I thought he was drunk and was about to hustle him back the way he came when I noticed that he was wet. Though it was a cold, rainy night, and really suffering from exposure and lack of food. I made him remove his coat. He had nothing on under it, but not without a great deal of trouble, and he insisted on drying it across his knees. He was a little weazened ape of an Irishman, about five foot three or four in height, with deep-set blue eyes, bushy eyebrows, a heavy discolored mustache, and a thick shock of white hair. Altogether, the most frightful-looking little dwarf that ever escaped out of a picture book. He was tattooed all over the arms and chest, hands across the sea, the Union Jack, a naked woman, several other designs common in waterfront tattooing parlors. His body was as shriveled as a withered apple, but his little bloodshot eyes blazed like bits of live coal. Except for the fire in them, he might have been a hundred years old, and as a matter of fact, he wasn't a great way from it. Eighty-seven, he told me, and that is about all he did tell me. He gorged some food, and— was all for getting away at once. But it had set in to rain very hard, and I persuaded him to wait until the worst of it was over. He was very suspicious at first. I believe he expected me to call a policeman. Later he thought a little, and became even talkative in a surly way when I told him, with the landlady's consent, that he might stay the night if he had no place else to go. Wouldn't hear of it, though. He said he had a job as night watchman at Rushcutters Bay. That might or might not have been true, at any rate, I went with him to the car line. The boarding house was a good mile from Rushcutters Bay, and gave him a couple of shillings as a loan, I said. He could return it sometime. Just before I left him, he asked me for my name and address, mumbling something about doing me a bit of good one of these days. He was insistent, so I gave it to him, but not at all willingly. He had frightened Mrs. Sharp, the landlady, just by the way he looked at her, and I didn't want him coming back. He didn't come back. 
That was in May, 1912, and I heard nothing more of him until September. I was still at the boarding-house, getting slowly better, but not yet good for anything. I kept out of doors as much as possible, took long walks in the country, and along the waterfront, looking at ships. When I came in one evening, Mrs. Sharp told me that an attendant from the Sydney Hospital had called twice during the day. An old man named Killerin, a patient at the hospital, wanted to see me. The name meant nothing to me, and I couldn't imagine who the man could be. The attendant called again later in the evening. Killerin was about to die, he said, and wouldn't give them any peace until I was brought to see him. It was getting on toward midnight when we reached the hospital. The old man was in one of the public wards. I recognized him at once, although he had shriveled away to nothing at all. It was impossible to forget his eyes once you had seen them. He was dying, no doubt of it, but I could see that he wasn't going to die until he was ready. Sit down close here, he said. I'm glad you came. You did me a good turn once, and I haven't forgot it. Few good turns I've had in my life. Not so many that what I can remember the lot. The night nurse had approached quietly and was, was standing on the other side of the bed. All at once he saw her. Hey, you, he said. Grease off out of this. Stand over there on the other side of the room where I can watch you. When she had gone, he rose from his pillow and looked cautiously around the room. The beds on either side of him were empty. There was a patient in the one across the aisle, but he was sleeping. Kilrin watched him for a moment to make sure of this. Then he motioned me with his finger to come still closer. Listen, he said. I've cut more throats in my time than you might think. Sounds a bit stagey, doesn't it? But these were his exact words. Nothing remarkable about them, of course. Throat-cutting is still a very thriving business. I waited for him to go on. He again looked up and down the room, and then asked me to hand him the coat which was lying across the foot of the bed. It was the same coat he had been wearing in May when he came to the boarding-house. "'And they brought me in here,' he said. "'They took my clothes, and I've had some trouble getting this back.' The attendant had told me as much. The old man had raised a very devil of a row until it was found. He asked me to rip open the lining of the right sleeve and to give him the paper I would find there. It was a soiled, greasy sheet of full scrap, pasted on a piece of cloth. Once, he went on, you gave me two shillings for car fare to Rush Cutter's Bay. Probably wasn't any hardship for you, but never mind about that. You said I could pay you back if I had a mind to. Well, I'm going to pay it back with a bit of interest. I'm going to give you this paper, and it's as good as three million pound notes of the Bank of England. I thought, of course, that he was completely off his chump and the fear that I would think so was uppermost in his mind. He kept repeating that he was old and worn out, but that his mind was clear. "'Don't you think I'm balmy?' he said. "'I know what I'm talking about as well as I know I'm going to die before morning.' He gave me a circumstantial account of the whole affair. I've outlined it briefly. There were many other interesting facts, but it is not worthwhile to speak of them here. As he talked, the conviction grew upon me that he was perfectly sane and was telling the truth. He went over the chart with me. It had been made by Alvarez, the scholar of the party, he said. There had been a good deal of quarreling and fighting later for the possession of it. Before I left him, 
he made me promise that I would go to Panaki. He wouldn't rest easy in his grave, he said, unless he knew that I was looking for the treasure. It's there, and it will always be there, if you're bloody fool enough to think I'm queer. It ain't likely I'd lie to you on my deathbed. Rest easy in his grave. There was an odd glimpse into his mind. He wasn't worrying about the crimes, and there was enough of them according to his own confession. It was the thought of the gold lying forever forgotten which worried him. He could rest quietly if he knew before he died that someone else was fighting and throat-cutting over it. I asked him why he hadn't gone back for it himself. He told me that of the fifty-three years since it had been buried, he had spent forty in prison and the rest of the time he was trying to earn or steal the money to buy a schooner. I told him that I would come back to see him the following day. Ah, you needn't bother, he said. I'm finished. And it was true. He died three hours later. Tried to forget the incident, but it was one of those things which refused to be forgotten. It was always in the back of my head. I decided to check up Killeran's story where I could. Made inquiries in Peru and found that the gold had actually been stolen. The dates and circumstances coincided with his account. A friend in the customs at Corktown confirmed for me the story of four shipwrecked sailors who landed in February 1860 from a ship called the Balsan Bird. I had a small piece of property on the outskirts of Cookstown, which I had bought years ago. With the money realized from the sale of it, I took passage for Tahiti on my way to Panaki. That voyage was the longest one I have ever made. By that time, the thought of those seven chests of gold, all in thirty kilo ingots, was with me twenty-four hours out of the twenty-four. Yes, even at night. I slept very little, and when I did, it was to dream of hunting for the treasure, of finding it. I became suspicious of a villainous-looking old man who was traveling third class. I thought he might be Brown or Luke Barrett. Perhaps they were not dead, after all. At Papeete, I told no one of my purpose there, with the exception of one government official. If the treasure should be found, the French government would have a claim to a certain percentage of uncoined gold, and I meant to be above board in my dealings with it. This official was sworn to secrecy, but the business leaked out eventually and created a great deal of excitement. I was immensely annoyed, of course, for I had guarded the secret as well as old Killerin ever had. However, I had in my pocket all the necessary papers, drawn up accurately, witnessed, signed, and sealed. I went on with my preparations, and finally in February, 1913, I was put ashore from a small cutter, not four hundred yards from where we are sitting. I started the search before the cutter was two miles on the return voyage. For two months I slept in the open, had no time to build a house, and ate tin food which I had brought with me. Killeran's chart was of but little use. It made reference to trees which had long since rotted away, or had been cut down by the natives of Narotakakavagi. The marks which I found corresponded precisely with those on the chart, but several of the most important ones were missing. The treasure hunter rose. Well, he said, there's the end of the story. You know the rest of it. But I don't know the rest at all, I said. You have left out the most interesting part. Tell me something of your life here. You've seen three days of it. It has gone on for seven years in the same way. You were diving just now in the lagoon. Do you think the gold may have been buried there, or that the land has fallen away? My dear fellow, I'll not weary you with an account of what I think. 
It's rather warm here. Shall we go back to the house? I was hoping for a week of calm, and when we went to bed that evening, there was reason to believe we might have it. A few hours later, however, I was awakened by the Englishman. It's going to be a bit of a blow presently, he said. Your skipper has just sent for you. He wants to get away at once. The stars had been blotted out, the wind was slowing off the palms, and waves slapping briskly on Lagoon Beach. Our farewell was a brief one. When shall you come to Tahiti? I asked. Not until I've found what I'm looking for. Well, I said, I hope that will be soon. But if he holds fast to his resolve, my belief is that it will be never. End of chapter 17